0: The
1: one and only Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Hi, this is David Ghosty-Wills and welcome to episode 21 of the We Say Yeah podcast, an unofficial monthly Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in chronological order. This month, we'll be talking with longtime Shadows fan and online Shadows archivist Jim Nugent about the second full-length LP from the group called Out of the Shadows. But first, some comments and reactions from our listeners regarding last month's episode with Mark J. Daniels about Jet Harris and Tony Meehan. Clive emailed us at we podcast at gmail.com and writes, Hi David, just emailing to say how much I'm enjoying the podcast. I'm 59 now, but was just getting into Cliff and the Shads when I was 13, when The Shadows' 20 Golden Greats was one of the big LPs of the year, 1977. At the time, I lived in North London and managed to collect a lot of those 45s, EPs, and LPs from jumble sales, junk shops, etc. But it wasn't until I found a copy of the Me and My Shadows book, which had a discography of their records up to that point, circa 1961, that it all began to fit together. Of course, then, the only way to hear a record was to catch it on the radio, borrow a copy off a friend, or own it yourself. And I spent years wondering what Jet Black, backed with Drifton, sounded like. I'd found a copy of Feelin' Fine at the Radio 1 Record Fair at Alexandria Palace for 10p, and Saturday Dance, backed with Lonesome Fella, you could get on the Regal Starline compilation LP, Something Else. At the time, I thought I was the only early Cliff and the Shads fan in the world, so it's great to recapture that feeling with your podcast. Thanks again, Clive. And thank you, Clive, for uh, sending us that email and I had some chit-chat back and forth with him during the past month. So thanks again for that. Anyone can email us at we podcast at gmail.com. When I say us, I mean me, I guess. But, you know, between everybody who's been on the show as a guest and everybody who listens, this is really a group effort. So I'm learning just as much from all of you as hopefully you are from uh, the episodes. Richard Wink wrote to us over on our Facebook page called We Say Yeah, which you should join if you haven't yet. He says, what a great episode. So many interesting tidbits of information. Thanks, David and Mark. And he also uh, linked a clip of Hank and Jet playing together in 1999. Kurt writes, thanks again for another excellent episode of the podcast. Thank you, Kurt. Tim Cooper writes, another enjoyable show, thanks Ghosty. Never knew Jet and Tony had so many singles released. I was fortunate enough to see most of the Shadow Manias and some of Jet's gigs later on, too, which was mentioned. He was a great entertainer with a lovely dry sense of humor, and he played the bass pretty good, too. He lived not too far away from me and once did a gig with the Rapiers in my hometown, Tottenham. Very, very cool. Hey, thanks again to everyone and anyone who comments or has a reaction to these podcasts because those comments and reactions really do inspire me to keep going on with the show. So uh, I always appreciate them. And you know what else I appreciate as we segue into this? Reviews. Yes, you can leave a review on either Apple Podcasts or the Podbean site because those reviews really help to boost... The visibility of this podcast in the ridiculously overcrowded world of music podcasting. Did you know that this program, we say yeah, cracked the top 40 podcast charts in Norway and in the Philippines? I mean, we have listeners all over the world, but we must be doing something right to uh, make the charts in uh, Norway and the Philippines. Although we've charted in other places too, but not quite as high as in those two countries. I sound like Cliff now. I'm talking about the charts. All right. Recently, I had the pleasure of chatting with Jim Nugent about the second album from The Shadows called Out of the Shadows and the single, Dance On, backed with all day. But everyone has an origin story, and I always like to get that on the show. So I began by asking Jim how he became a fan of The Shadows. Mm
0: I became a fan of The Shadows by accident, David. I was 10 years old, living in Liverpool. My parents kept a pub, and the pub had a record player downstairs. And when I was in bed at night, I could hear the records on that record player as plain as day. And two records that stuck in my memory were these two guitar records. And I remember sneaking down to the pub in the afternoon when it was closed and going through all the records to try and find... The ones that had the guitar on them. And I found the one I liked best was Because They're Young by Duane Eddy. But there was also Apache by The Shadows, and I liked that as well. Then The Shadows appeared on television on the program called Thank You, Lucky Stars, miming to The Frightened City. And I was just blown away by that. thought that was great and became a fan. It wasn't until over a year later that we actually got a modern record player that would play 45s and LPs, But when that happened, my Christmas and birthday presents stopped being whatever they were before and became the money for records. I started collecting records in late 62, just before Christmas, and my first purchase was two records at the same purchase from the shop in Liverpool. One was Love Me Do by The Beatles, and the other was Wonderful Land by The Shadows. Not their latest record at the time, but the one I wanted, so that I bought that one.
1: Cool. So that's singles covered, but what about LPs? Because the one we're going to discuss today would have been the new release at the time. Was Out of the Shadows the first Shadows LP you bought?
0: It was the first Shadows LP I ever had, that's true, but I didn't have it until early 64. My record collecting in the earliest days was confined to singles. And um, I think I bought my copy, my original copy of Out of the Shadows, secondhand at a well-known secondhand record shop in Liverpool, for uh, quite a bit cheaper than the new price would have been, and uh, started listening to that at home.
1: So this set off your lifelong interest in the Shadows, which now has manifested itself in these various groups and pages devoted to archiving images of the the picture sleeves and and everything. So how did this? idea come about how do you go from being a fan to being something of a shadows archivist? well that uh, that's just an
0: idea I had a few years ago and uh, I was thinking about doing a proper bespoke website but then I thought Facebook is actually quite easy to do this on and I'll, I'll do it there and I started to do that and then started collaborating with other people who could help me particularly with scans of LP sleeves which are very difficult to do with uh, ordinary home computer equipment um I, I know someone who has a large-scale scanner and can do the albums and he's a huge collector uh, Paul Ray and uh, so we collaborate on that we're in a bit of a hiatus at the moment I can't keep up that LP um website all the time and we're, I hope to start it again soon
1: well your collection must be ginormous <laughs> well it's it's
0: complete <laughs> certainly that
1: <laughs> I don't
0: know about ginormous I've got oh I can tell you. I could let me just click over to this PC I have on uh, 90 degrees away. And if I go to to uh, my records database and then look for artists, contains the words shadows. I've got 327 separate releases on uh, singles, EPs, LPs, CDs and cassettes of music by the shadows. That will include some Cliff Richard material. I also do a fair bit when I can get the opportunity of uh, restoration of poor quality audio that's come from non-standard sources, radio broadcasts, um, sometimes dubs from acetates, That's that sort of thing. Some of these things find their way to me. And, uh, and I, I like to, uh, as a hobby, clean them up like doing the same with with images as well in Photoshop and things
1: like that. All right. So let's talk about this album, Out of the Shadows, released in October 1962, produced by Nori Paramore. The cover sporting a photo of the shadows stepping literally out of the shadows and not unlike what the Beatles would do on their With the Beatles album the following year. I think it's fair to say, though, and I enjoy quite a bit about this album, but I think it's fair to say that this album... Even to this day, is considered somewhat lackluster compared to the first Shadows LP.
0: Yes, I think that's probably true. I think the first album, for a lot of longtime Shad's fans, will never be surpassed. It's as simple as that. There are big differences between The Shadows, the 1961 debut album, and Out of the Shadows. One of the big differences is that Jet's influence has remarkably diminished on out of the shadows because he's only on a few tracks and i think that jet was probably one of those behind the aggressive sound of the early shadows and tony the same but tony isn't on any of the tracks on out of the shadows and jet is on some of them only that is certainly true
1: well let's get into it side one track one A song called The Rumble, written by Ike Isaacs, and this was recorded in May of 62. You know, for me, (laughs) it's going to sound like it's all downhill from here, but that's not true. But for me, this is the best track on the album.
0: It's one of the best tracks on the album i certainly agree with with that there's there are some interesting tales behind uh, the ike isaacs connection and uh, ike isaacs himself i mean ike was giving hank some jazz guitar lessons at the time also he he was a, a very very renowned session player and uh, radio tv player as well i heard him once with his combo play the rumble on bbc radio on a uh, val Dunican radio show in the light program about 64 or so i mean i was i was riveted to the set when i heard it start i couldn't quite believe it but there we went and it was a it was a purely nice version as well from what i can remember
1: this is going to be an odd connection i'm going to make but there is a similarity between this recording and <laughs> of all things the theme to the monsters which was a TV series that came out several years later. I don't know if you're familiar with
0: it. Ah, da, 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 da. Right! Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's da That hadn't occurred to me, but uh, now you mention it, yes, I can see there's a similarity there, Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that whoever arranged the Munsters theme would have heard the rumble. In fact, there's another song coming up on this album that has another kind of connection to a song that came out much, much later. But we'll move on to track two, The Bandit. Now, this is where I get into some difficulty trying to pronounce the writer's name here. Alfredo Ricardo de Nascimento, I think Nacimento. is the right way to say it. No, oh, there we go. And also Michael Carr and Jimmy Kennedy wrote the uh, English lyrics to this, from what I understand. I enjoy this song quite a bit, but it sounds like something the Brothers Four or the Kingston Trio might have recorded. It's uh, a folk number.
0: I'm a hero down in Rio, where they talk.
1: Once I robbed a big ranchero,
0: who was rich beyond compare, and to ransom held his daughter. She was young and she was fair. Well, it was a hit in the uh, mid-50s in Britain. For somebody else, offhand, I can't really say I remember who it was. But I can remember hearing Olé, I Am a Bandit on the radio when I was about maybe four or five. I could definitely remember that. So the song was known. I mean, I had no idea what the bandit was when I saw it on the album. And when I played it, I thought, oh, that song, I remember that immediately from from when I was a small boy and remembered it straight away. I think this is Hank and Bruce referring back to their own early teenage years. And the stuff they heard on the radio. I mean, I know that the song obviously has a Portuguese lyric. I have actually seen the sheet music in Portuguese. The correct title is "Cangaceiro," which is the Portuguese for bandits, as I understand it. And oh, that rhymed.
1: <laughs> well, the song comes from a film, in keeping with the shadows and their reputation as cinephiles, a 1953 Portuguese film called O Cangaceiro," And in America, it was retitled The Ninth Bullet.
0: Presenting a new, powerful, and fiercely exciting motion picture with more excitement and raw drama
1: than any film you have ever seen. (laughs) The ninth bullet, which introduces you to Galdino
0: Ferreira, savage and brutal bandit leader, whose only pleasure is in killing and bleeding. See one man stand alone against the ninth bullet. More powerful, more exciting, completely different from any motion picture you have ever seen. Winner of two prizes at the International Film Festival at
1: Cannes. <laughs> So we move on to track three, a song called Cozy, written by Earl Schumann and Mort Garson. This was recorded in April of 1962, and we're back to instrumentals, even though this song feels like it's made for vocals, at least to me. There's elements of doo-wop in this, and it, it just feels like a song that's setting the stage for a vocal that never arrives, but it is a wonderful piece.
0: Well, Schumann and Garson were well-known uh, team of songwriters. And I wonder whether this song doesn't have lyrics as well. But I have to say, I have never come across any performance of it with, uh, as, as a vocal ever. Uh, but I bet you there are some th- there are some vocals hanging around, written out at the publisher's office. I think Hank's guitar sound on this is, is has developed from the earlier days. I mean, he's still got quite a, an aggressive, spiky sound all the way through the first album right up to the savage and it's even there to some extent on wonderful land but after that things start softening and um then you've got the acoustic guitar and guitar tango of course but this is a a um, a good example of hank softening his sound probably using the, the neck pickup on the on the strat as for other tracks at the same time and uh and, and developing this sort of dreamy echoey sound it's just yes beautiful sound um i can't say i would listen to the track a lot but I do like it, and uh, I can see straight away this is a landmark in the in the musical progress of The Shadows.
1: Cut four on the album is 1861, written by Hank and Bruce and Brian, recorded in June of 1962. Here we're back to the Old West. This sounds to me like the theme to a lost TV Western <laughs> that uh, does, doesn't exist. A- 1861 would have been Civil War period, so maybe that was on their minds.
0: I think they might have meant 1851 when the great drive to the west was 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 starting because somebody wrote on the album sleeve or perhaps it was on an ep sleeve from one of the extracted eps it conjured up a picture of of wagons rolling across the prairie and it does to some extent it's got that that tv western sound about it and uh, it could just as easily have been on their first ep the one that had mustang and theme from shane And the theme from Giant, uh, it could have been on there instead of Shotgun, and it would have been an all-Western EP.
1: And I've said it on the podcast before, but I'm surprised that a filmmaker like Quentin Tarantino, for example, hasn't made kind of a wild Western with Shadow's music in it. I mean, it would would just be perfect. (laughs) Yeah, may well. Then we move on to Perfidia written by Alberto Dominguez and this was recorded in April of 1962. This song dates back to the 1930s. In yes. fact, I have it as recorded by Xavier Cugat and his orchestra on a CD as well. And I like this version. I think I might like the version on When in Spain that they do with Cliff a little better, but this is good. <laughs>
0: I do like their version of uh, Perfidia. Let me just say that the sort of interlude in the middle where you get these voices doing an upward swoop. I've no idea what that's about. I've never had an idea what that's about. (laughs) And I've just. (laughs) Let me just tell you that a relative of one of the shadows and I were discussing this and he said he didn't understand what that was about either i, I, I keep meaning to ask bruce when i um, when i see him what was all, what all that was about but i have to say bruce prefers the ventures version
1: Next up, we've got Little B, written by Brian Bennett. This is an impressive drum workout for Brian. The first time I heard this song was on a compilation, one of those absolutely the best of the Shadows collections. And I think this is the only track from this album to show up on those Greatest Hits compilations. But uh, it's infectious. It's wonderful.
0: You may have—I know you have—come across the CD, "The Cliff and the Shadows Live at the ABC in Kingston." Yes, brought in early 1962, and you will also know that Little B is featured on that album. So, although somebody in the audience calls out, "See you in my drums," when a drum solo is mentioned, and uh, of course, what they—they play Little B. So it was in the—it was in the repertoire from quite soon after Brian joined. And I'm not sure it's offhand of the recording date. I'm sure you've got it written down there.
1: May of 62. Right.
0: And look, let me just tell you also then that on April the 23rd, 1962 in Liverpool, I saw the shadows live for the first time in my life. And they played a little B then as well. I remember that very, very well, including the little bit in the middle where the other three shadows having gone off stage, sort of crept back on at the side of the stage and started playing the Latin American percussion. Which you hear on the uh, on the record on the recording as well of course so i that, it sticks in my mind very very vividly so it, it's been a big feature of their live shows for a long time
1: tell me about the first time that you saw the shadows what were the circumstances right
0: the shadows were uh, very very immersed in in sort of general show business and they were doing a week in variety at the liverpool empire on the night i went i i went i was aged 11 my brother was a uh, 9 and we both had tickets to go and see this show and there we were sat in the stalls waiting that and up, up in one of the boxes was a group of men, young men one of them wearing glasses and my brother looked up and said oh there's the shadows up there and we thought they were out there looking down watching the show but it turns out it wasn't the shadows it was almost certainly the beatles because they were taken along to see The Shadows at the Empire Theatre by Brian Epstein, sometime during the time when he was their manager, but they hadn't had success. And the only time The Shadows played during that period was the week that they did that variety. So I like to luxuriate in the belief that I saw the Beatles in a box, looking down, <laughs> in the theatre box, looking down at The Shadows, eventually at the end of the show, playing their stuff. There were other acts on there as well frank ifield totally unknown um jackie trent totally unknown um was there another musical actor they stuck the show started with some chinese acrobats as all variety shows did oh yes uh, Ch- chas mcdevitt who was had some connections with the shadows mm-hmm. shirley douglas they were on as a duo as well but the biggest thing that i can say about the show that night is that bruce had been taken ill and hadn't been able to perform for a few days And instead of Bruce on rhythm guitar, they had Peter Carter, who was one of the checkmates, Emil Ford's checkmates, playing rhythm guitar. And Licorice was playing his second gig with the Shadows because Jet had only left the week before. So what you had, anything they played on the stage that that night, which they had recorded, only Hank was left on the stage of the people who were on the record.
1: It's like an entirely new band in a way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember they started with Midnight, which is an unusual starting number, but I think they probably had to stick to things that uh, Peter Carter could remember and knew. And he wouldn't have been rehearsing to play with the shadows. Of course, he'd have just been called in and told to join in, I think. So Midnight, they did. They did FBI. They did not do mid- uh, Did not do Apache. Um, and they did the piano one as well, The Hank did. Uh, stand up and say that. I don't think at that stage they'd recorded... Um, one that's on this album. So right. probably Say
1: that. So I have another weird connection that I can make with Little B and another song. There's a song from 1983 by an alternative slash indie rock band called The Violent Femmes. It's called Blister in the Sun and it has this repetitive riff that sounds a heck of a lot like Little B. So first, Little B. And now Blister in the Sun. I'm not saying that the Violent Femmes heard Little B and decided to write a new song around that riff or anything like that. It, it could just be a coincidence. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, before we uh, move on, anything else to say about Little B? That's possible. I mean,
0: Little B is written in a very, very loosely generic big band style. It's almost a blues, not quite a blues, and it but it has that middle section where with the uh, chords progressing Round the circle of fifths fire a couple of diminished and augmented chords as well never mind all that nonsense that bruce told you about he didn't know those chords he was playing them back then on all sorts of tracks and th- there we are we got augmented and diminished chords in there it's a pretty jazzy piece
1: so we get to track seven on the record this is bo diddley written by bo diddley and this was recorded may of 62 this is, I think with the next two tracks, this is where, for me, the album takes a little bit of a dip. Um, it's okay. I'm not crazy about this version of Bo Diddley. I mean, I've I've heard Bo Diddley's version. I've heard Buddy Holly's version. I've heard so many different versions of it. This is, it sounds like album filler to me. I mean, great harmonica work. I'm assuming that Licorice Locking is playing bass and harmonica on this.
0: Oh tell me, tell where you been? I've been up by me a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring don't shine, I'm gonna take you to a private eye. And if
1: that private
0: eye can... Let me tell you what I know about it. I spoke to Licorice Locking for the first time and I met him for the first time in October 1997. He came to an event I organized. And I had the opportunity to sit down with him for 15 minutes and just chat about his time with the shadows. And I made a note on my notepad of all the tracks that he played bass on on out of the shadows. And he he I just went through the tracks and he just said, no, Jack, that was Jet. This, this. Then when it came to Bo Diddley, he said, I'm playing the harmonica. But he does not remember playing the bass. He thought that Jet must have done it because it was a backing track to which he superimposed his harmonica later on. So he was of the opinion that Jet played bass on this, but there is plenty of learned opinion, people who've done the research at EMI Abbey Road and at Hayes who say, no, that can't be true. There were no recordings before May. So... The, the short answer to this, I don't know who's playing bass on it, really. I've got good evidence both ways, but it's totally contradictory and, and cannot be reconciled. The other thing I would say is that I first heard them play this track live on TV or at, live on a videotaping of a TV program in the summer of 62. They did a half hour show on ITV just called The Shadows Show. And they didn't do many tracks on on that, but Bo Diddley was one of them played live, and uh, I can't remember whether they even had a bass guitar playing on, on it because Licorice was playing the harmonica. But that was the first time I heard it, the, and it didn't it didn't do much to me. It wasn't it wasn't my favourite sort of stuff by The Shadows. The following year, I heard Bo Diddley by Buddy Holly, uh, because it was it came out as a single in '63 in Britain. And I also then started to hear the original version by Bo diddley because R&B was suddenly starting to become big news in 63 after the Beatles and the Rolling Stones came came to the fore and it was it was on TV it was on the radio I remember that as well I do prefer Bo diddley's version I have to say to either Buddy Holly's version or the Shadows version oh dearly, call nanny gold. to make it pretty baby oh.
1: the next cut on the album this is interesting because here's a song that i think i've talked about so much on the podcast only because michael carr and jimmy kennedy come up a lot and i always say michael carr is probably best known for south of the border um south of the border happens to be one of my favorite songs not by the shadows per se but certainly by Everybody who's recorded it, Frank Sinatra's version from, I think, 52 or 53 is one of my favorite versions. This, not so much. Um, You know, you can't keep a good song down. I enjoy this version, but I don't think it's a standout on this album.
0: I do and let me oh okay go ahead we mentioned we remarked earlier on on how by the time of things like cozy and maybe one or two other of the instrumental tracks the Shadows' sound was starting to soften by the time you got halfway through this album and South of the Border brought it right back on track that was that was almost like listening to the original Shadows lineup particularly Hank's improvised solo in the third chorus (laughs) just stupendous i i said to my brother he was a shadows fan of, of a sort as well but i said to him oh you've got to hear this track i said this sounds like the old shadows you know we both knew what we meant when when we said something like that and he agreed with me
1: you know this softening of the sound is something that i'd never actually considered because i didn't experience this music in real time and when i heard all of the Shadows' music prior to 1963, it was all mixed up on various compilations with no rhyme or reason, and I just experienced it as whoosh, you know, here's the sound of the Shadows. Uh, One of the significant changes in the Shadows' sound around this time, however, was the introduction of strings on Wonderful Land. So that neatly dovetails into the next song, Spring is Nearly Here, written by Brian and Bruce, This was recorded in early 62 and a later string overdub. I love the sound of the shadows and strings.
0: those recordings with strings are overdubs that's the first thing i don't think they ever recorded at studio two with a with a with a lot mm-hmm. of string section going so that that's true and probably there were that and atlantis and uh and perhaps even no, it wouldn't be wonderful land because that was earlier but perhaps atlantis and one or two others uh were done at the same done at the same time by Norrie, just being in there with the back with the original track and a string chorale but uh, i believe that this song was written by brian before he joined the shadows and he was still in the theater pit in great Yarmouth or wherever it was. And uh, Bruce heard him play it on the piano and suggested the middle eight, which is how that Bennett and Welsh credit comes about. It is one of the best tracks on the album, in my opinion. I mean, I do love the sound of the shadows with strings and, uh, uh, and and this is one of the best of them. It's a tune I love playing myself on the guitar with backing tracks at one of these Shadows clubs as well. Oh, it's a beautiful
1: tune. Yeah, I always feel like the Shadows are cinematic, you know, widescreen anyway, and the strings only drive that point home. So up next, track 10, Are They All Like You, written by Tim Gale. This is also recorded in May of 62. Boy, they were busy that month. I'd say this is a pleasant if unremarkable, Everly Brothers-style song, it's not one of my favorites. Why keep me hanging on a string Ring-a-ding-a-ding
0: Everybody knows but you I wish you'd understand Don't keep me in promised land Why can't you be true Are they all like you why pretend you're Lara. and that's how the, the critics of the day saw it i was reading the new musical express record review of this album just yesterday and the reviewer really didn't like are they all like you and uh, he he was less than um, fulsome in his praise for it and i think that's probably justified um i've never heard of tim gale in any other context if, if he was a sort of singer-songwriter performer. He mustn't have had much success because I, I might have remembered his name if he'd had records out, but I've never heard of him in any other context. The song is okay. It fills the album up, I suppose, on the second side, and I don't really think I can say much more about it. It's not a, a song I would put the album on to listen to.
1: Yeah, I'm right there with you. Who knows, maybe Tim Gale was another Nori Paramore pseudonym. Uh, next cut on the album, Tales of a Raggy Tram Line written by Jet and Brian. So already we know that Jet's most likely on this <laughs> track. He's yep. Yeah, this was this is the oldest song on the album I think. This is from December of 61 and it's another showcase for Brian.
0: Absolutely. And to my ears, somewhat reminiscent of Walk Don't Run. came first or even wipeout although it's a more sophisticated piece of music than, than wipeout is but it sounds it, it's got this construction of, of a walk don't run or or um lullaby of the leaves or something like that from the ventures in 6061 i think but it's a great track i just love the sound of the the drums and i love jet's running bass part underneath the drums it's one of the three or four best tracks on the album for me
1: All right, so the penultimate track on the album is a song called Some Are Lonely, written by, of all people, Cliff Richard. And I say of all people because Cliff wasn't really writing all that much at this time. This is another track from December of 61. I like it. You know, it's wistful and well-performed. It's not one of my favorites, but it is a song that nicely sets up the last track.
0: somewhat similar to cozy i think it's got that sort of uh, matured softer sound from hank on the on the guitar he would take that sort of style to new heights in the mid 60s it's particularly a couple of years later when he had the use of the diamond tone and volume foot pedal which you may have heard about and but he hasn't got it at this stage and he's he's relying really upon the echo and the general sound of, of the Stratocaster when when the tone is rained back a bit just to get that dreamy sort of sound. I think, yes, I, sa- I know I said it about Tales and Raggy Tramline. This is one of the three, four, maybe five best tracks on the album for me.
1: I've got three favorites on this album. The first one is the Rumble, the second one, Little B, and this is the third one, kind of cool, recorded in June of 1962, written by Hank and Bruce. At first, I thought, oh, this is like a Floyd Kramer number. Maybe it is a Floyd Kramer number that I just didn't know, but it's an original, and it's fantastic, a great way to wind up the album.
0: It is very Floyd Kramer-ish. I didn't know that at the time because I'd never heard of Floyd Kramer then. But once you hear uh, On the Rebound and stuff like that, a year or two later, as you're getting a wider record collection, you think, oh, hang on. That is that is just like Stand Up and Say That or or uh, Kind of Cool. I think that's just the style that Hank felt comfortable in playing the piano, to be frank. And, uh, and why not? He, he did that, that track. I mean, the uh, recording of it uh, fills about half of the sleeve notes written by nori paramore that it is kind of cool that features centrally in those sleeve notes um and and the the picture of that recording session was just um vivid in in that little pen picture i thought very well written and i do like the track as bruce playing the uh, guitar solo by the way he's always at pains to point that
1: out (laughs) well I think that, yes, this is not as strong an LP as the first one, but there's plenty to enjoy here. So let's move into a discussion of a single released in December of 1962, and it's Dance On, written by Val and Elaine Mergen, I believe is the name. It's pronounced Murta. Murta. Murta, okay. This is a number one record, and it sounds like Oh, you've missed out and, Adams, Dave. Oh, there's someone else? Let's, let me get my glasses on here. They were the Avons,
0: a vocal group at the time who had, uh, you know, worked on TV and sessions and um, radio and had a few records out. They had a cover, for instance, of Seven Little Girls Sitting in the Back Seat. Seven little girls sitting in the back seat, hugging and kissing with Fred.
1: I said, "Why don't one of you come up and sit beside me?" And this is what the seven girls said: All together now, one, two, three. Keep your mind on your driving, keep your hands on the wheel,
0: and keep your stupid on- They they were pretty well known on British media in the British media for, for that recording, around 61, I think, maybe 60. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. But they they were well known for that and, and a few and some of their other records, and they obviously just uh, sent a few demos around to uh, to the various publishers and Carlin Music passed this one to Bruce because Bruce has said that he heard this and thought he didn't like it as a vocal very much but he thought they could make an instrumental of it
1: And I have heard a vocal version of this song by Kathy Kirby. Don't talk o' love right now, dance on Although the light but back to the original so let's flip this record over let me just tell you that this was the third sure. single I bought
0: I'd had um money f- from a great aunt for to buy two singles as a, my Christmas present and that was love me doing wonderful land and when I got some money from another relative to buy a single this was the latest Shadows single just before Christmas and so I bought this so this was the third record I ever bought and out of the shadows was the first LP I ever bought so I can certainly remember those Dance on, yes, I thought it sounded good at the time, but in retrospect, in retrospect, it 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 doesn't have the the cachet. It doesn't have that sort of aggressive, raw sound of everything that they did before. Wonderful Land, 1962 was a bit of an odd year for them because they started off with The Savage, which had been re- released at the very end of '61, a really raw rocking guitar sound all the way through fantastic then there was wonderful land about which i will hear no criticism but then there was guitar tango and that was their latest record for a long time then dance on came out at the very end of the year well it was a bit more of a return to the older shadow sound but it was never really back back to it and it never did get back to it
1: thereafter you want to talk about different we'll flip this record over and we'll talk about the b-side written by bruce and hank all day
0: Yes, I mean the shadows had a little bit of uh, form for taking songs and then doing their own version of them, probably so they could get uh, a better deal on the publication rights. I mean, FBI, for instance, is is, is known to be uh, a reworking of of something else, and and um, so of course was um, Midnight. Hank has frankly admitted. It was their own version of Sleepwalk, which, but they didn't want to put Sleepwalk on the uh, on the back of a single. And then you've got uh, this, which let me just t- take you back a, a month or two. I told you about that Shadows show on TV. One of the things they did on that show was they produced two Greek bouzoukis, which they said they bought out in Greece when they were filming Summer Holiday. And they played Never on a Sunday, which was a popular instrumental record at the time. So this really is, I think, the Shadows version of Never on a Sunday, but with slightly different melody and things like that, and and using the bazookies, But of course, it's them. They get the composer rights. Shadows music gets the publication rights shared with Carlin. And the world is all to rights. That's that's the way it goes. My mother loved this record. She thought it sounded Spanish. I had to point out to her that it actually sounds very Greek. But there we go. There's a story yeah. about, about all day was that while they were filming for uh, summer holiday, the vast majority of which was done at, um, at, at the studios in Hertfordshire, they were hanging around all day waiting to be called. And so they just uh, were here all day and someone said, oh, it's a good title for an instrumental. And that's where that title came from.
1: Well, sir, you are definitely a great wealth of knowledge about The Shadows. So as we wrap up here, thanks so much for being on the program. And where can people go online to catch up with your Shadows virtual collection, if that's the best way to describe it?
0: Right. If, um, if you're a member of Facebook, then the easiest way to do it is do a search for a Facebook group. There's more than one of them. There's The Shadows albums, and then in brackets after that curated the shadows UK EPs brackets curated the shadows non-UK EPs curated and the shadows singles curated I wish in retrospect i had done all the EPs in one group but it's a bit too fiddly now to combine it all the curated bit means I do not accept other people putting stuff up there pictures or certainly not links to recordings of themselves or anything like that. This is just dealing with the Shadows releases. And uh, we we have the highest possible quality of graphics. We, we try to write intelligently and incisively about all the releases we try to deal with all their releases as well we've got plenty of foreign releases coming to us for inclusion and paul ray my partner in crime in the albums one uh, has a phenomenal collection and the ability to do phenomenally good uh, graphics as well when i get an lp sleeve as an image if the back of it is dirty as it and scuffed as it often is I make it so it doesn't look like that, which is where I mentioned Photoshop earlier on. Everything I do, I try to make it look brand new. And uh, that's, that's, we love it when people comment and get into discussion and argument about it. We think that's great. I would love to have more discussion about the albums, but just, I just, uh, it's just something you need to get into really. Uh, it's It's, this is a memory of childhood. It's a memory of adolescence. Even when the shadows weren't popular, I was still a big fan. And uh, I just love it when people are discussing these things, because to me, as, as Bill Shankly, the famous football manager, once said, people think that football is a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. And that's my opinion on The Shadows as well. <laughs>
1: My thanks once again to Jim Nugent for appearing on the show. And if you would like to respond or react or comment, you can always email me. It's We wesayyeahpodcast at gmail.com. Join us on Facebook. Look for the We Say Yeah page. I always neglect to mention Twitter. I am on Twitter. We Say Yeah on Twitter. And next month, we're all going on a summer holiday. See you then.
0: Yeah